This morning's reading is taken from Amos chapter 8, starting at verse 4. And you can find that on page 922 of the Church Bibles. And reading to the end of the chapter. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended, that we may market wheat? Skimping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver, and the needy with a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. They who swear by the shame of Samaria will say, as surely as your God lives, O Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again. This is the word of the Lord. As we stand, let's pray. Heavenly Father, through your living and enduring word, you bring us to new birth as we come to trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. By your Holy Spirit, who gave your words to Amos, Speak to us now from this same word, fulfilled in your Son. Give us, we pray, new hearts, humble lives, renewed minds. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do please be seated. If you want to uh, find that translator code, it's back on the screen. And uh, hopefully you'll uh, be able to make the app work this morning. Uh, Using anything from Microsoft is itself a step of faith, but that's not what I'm here to talk about uh, this morning. Uh, We are, as uh, John says, back in the book of Amos, continuing our series and uh, in our second last uh, look at it this morning, chapter 8, verses 4 to 14, uh, that Bridget read before, so do have those open uh, before you if you can. That would be a good thing. One of the things that annoys me is being accused of being religious. Now, I know that might seem an unreasonable annoyance. Uh, given that I have now spent over half my life being a clergyman, nearly 30 years uh, in that. If I'm not religious, then you might think, then who is? 
And of course it's possible that I'm just cranky because I'm reaching a certain age. I have to be open to that possibility. But bear with me, because uh, ever since I became a Christian at the age of 19, I have winced at the characterization that I have found religion, that I am now a religious person, contrary to the irreligious one that I was in my youth. Why does it grate so much? Uh, I confess it's partly the negative stereotypes the word often carries with it. Uh, If we say in our culture, gosh, you're very religious, we don't usually mean that as a compliment. Uh, How often have you heard someone enthusiastically say, oh, so-and-so is really religious, let's go and spend some time with them. More often in our culture, the opposite of true. It is true. You meet someone uh, for the first time, they discover that you are religious, and quite quickly you find they're looking over your shoulder to talk at someone else at whatever gathering you're in. But my main reason for recoiling, I think, is the sadness that it suggests people think that faith in Jesus Christ can be reduced to merely external things. Religion is the outward expression of faith. Religion means doing what we're doing now, going to church services. It means the rituals, habits, rules, often unfamiliar language to those looking in from outside. It means the hymns that we've been singing. It means prayer books and things like that. They're not all bad things at all. Many of them are very precious and have an important place. But none of them get to the heart of what Christian faith really is all about. Heart of Christian faith is Jesus Christ, our living, loving Lord, his self sacrificial death in our place on the cross, his living resurrection hope within us, the family that he gathers us in to belong to, the word by which he nourishes and teaches us. Heart of Christianity is not religion, but relationship. Someone said going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sleeping in a garage makes you a car. It's not about cultivating certain religious practices. In and of themselves, that doesn't get you any nearer to God. What matters is Jesus Christ and our response to him. He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. And when he was asked the question, what must we do to do the works that God requires? He said simply this, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Religion is all about doing things. And what God requires for us isn't to do anything. Jesus simply says we need to trust him. To place our trust in him in the way that a patient trusts her surgeon, uh, putting your whole life in their hands without reservation. And as we do that, in the vivid imagery from John 6, uh, as we come to him and eat on him, trust in him, feed on him in our hearts, we will live, live eternally. We will live with God They will come to know God as our Father, whose adoptive grace will never let us go. We'll come to know the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We'll come to know the living, sustaining, holy-making presence of the Spirit of God right within us. This is our faith. This is the core of our being. This is our deepest identity. And yes, there are outward implications in terms of our daily lives. But how can you reduce that to Gosh, you're quite religious. 
Not a cold and lifeless word, that is. Now, as I say, there are certain religious implications of trusting in Jesus Christ. We'll come to that shortly. But there's more in my objection to that word. Not only does the word religion fail to grasp the height at the heart of vital Christianity, it masks the reality. Everywhere taught in Scripture, should have had that one up, it masks the reality taught everywhere that the dividing line that runs through humanity is not between the religious and the irreligious, but between those who repent of their sins, take refuge in Jesus Christ, and those who do not and go on their way unchanged. John the Baptist spelled it out very plainly. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains upon him. This is the one question that matters. Do you trust in Jesus Christ, or do you reject him? That's the fault line that runs through the entire human race. Uh, But among those who don't trust in Jesus Christ, among those who don't know God, there are both deeply religious and entirely irreligious people. Irreligious people are obvious, aren't they? Uh, They're a loud and confident and rapidly growing segment of Western society in particular. Uh, But here's the part that people often don't expect And this is how we land in Amos chapter 8. Religion can be just as much an expression of rebellion against God and ignorance of God as irreligion can be. Now, we might expect the Bible to say that about non-Christian religion, non-biblical religion, and it does. When the Apostle Paul came to the city of Athens to preach the gospel, Luke tells us that he was greatly distressed to find that the city was full of idols. And yet the opening words of his address to the Athenians were these, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, and when I did so I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. Do you see the point? They were deeply religious, so much so that it was his opening point of connection with them, and they were utterly ignorant of God. And more devastatingly still, Jesus and the prophets often condemned those who outwardly practiced the religion of the Bible, people like us, but whose religion demonstrated that they didn't know the God they were worshipping either. That is far more devastating and far more necessary for us to be willing to hear this morning. And friends, this is where Amos puts his finger today. And if we are wise, we will spend our time this morning not looking to condemn the irreligious or the followers of other religions, but allowing God's word to ask us the penetrating question, does my religion flow out of living, vibrant faith in Jesus Christ? Does it reflect an actual knowledge of and deep submission to and desire to know the true and living God? Am I living outwardly my inward faith in Jesus Christ in a way that honors him, or is my religion bankrupt? Amos comes, of course, as a prophet to Israel, As we've seen over recent weeks, Israel prosperous and full of the rhythms and rituals of biblical religion. 
If you like, he comes to a, thinking of our culture, a 1950s version uh, of Israel. The churches are full. They've never had it so good. Uh, there's an outward, broad acceptance, at least in principle, of the morality espoused in the Bible. Like Paul coming to Athens, Amos observes that in every way the Israelites are very religious. Then comes God's devastating critique of their religion delivered through his prophet. They who claim to know God are actually denying him by the way they live. And here's why this matters for us. For us who claim to know Jesus Christ, Amos's critique of Israel helps us to test the genuineness of our faith too. Because you see, like the people of Athens, like the people of Amos's day, we are very religious. You're in church this morning. Don't you know it's 2023 and people don't do that anymore? You should be in Ikea or on the golf course, also indulging some other pursuit if you were like your neighbours. Now, don't get me wrong, you shouldn't be, and I'm glad you're not. But do you see my point? By practising religion, we are the cultural outliers in our day. We're here because we trust in Jesus Christ, or we're exploring whether we might. And so we've engaged in a religious practice, a church service. So we too need to be tested in the way that Amos tested the people of Israel. We need to brace ourselves for these three tests as we see their ugly practices and ask the Lord if we see any sign of them in ourselves to grant us, as we've already thought earlier in this service, uh, for the Lord to give us true repentance and a renewal of his Holy Spirit. So first, Amos chapter 8 verses 4 to 6, heartless religion. Jesus said, To the Pharisees, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In the same way, Amos, in these verses, exposes the faraway hearts of an apparently religious people. By God's grace, the Holy Spirit will do the same work now where it needs doing. Listen again to these verses. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. I'll dive in to verse 5 at the center of that passage. That describes the religious observance of these Israelites. They kept the Sabbath. They obeyed the fourth commandment. They even kept the monthly new moon religious festivals. Now, we tend to concentrate religious activity uh, around Christmas and Easter twice a year. These Israelites maintained an impressive monthly schedule of religious practices. And yet, it was not a religion of the heart. They're sitting in church, as it were, willing the sermon to end. You can't imagine that, can you? Because you've never had that experience. They want the day to pass because they want to get back. They've got so much to do. They want to go back and make some money. Of course, we have an advantage, don't we? How many of us now read our Bibles on our phones? So if we're doing that, who would know if we're trading stocks or on the IKEA app? 
if not in the physical store during a tedious part of the church service. Maybe that's a little bit too obvious. Our chairs are a bit too close together. But, But haven't you ever wrestled with the feeling, I suppose I ought to go to church this morning, but really my heart's not in it. I've got so much to do. I just want to get on and avoid the interruption. That's the start of heartless religion. Do you know the story? A woman wakes her cranky husband on a Sunday morning. Time for get to get up for church, she says. I don't want to go, he grumbles and rolls over grumpily. You go, he grumbles. I'm staying in bed. As she exhorts him again and again and eventually, she says in exasperation, you've got to go, you're the vicar. None of us, none of us is immune to the temptation of a heart that begins to grow cold and distant from God, even while maintaining the externals. As the old hymn has it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. He is my heart. Oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. How easily. Our hearts begin to drift. Friends, would you learn to recognize those signs in yourselves? Repent of them when you see them. Pray for the forgiving and renewing mercy of the Lord. That when we come here, we may come with one purpose as one people. To engage with God, heart and soul and mind and strength. And to bless one another as we do so. This is true religion. This is the purpose of our Sabbath day meetings. For look where our hearts will take us once that drift begins, if it is unchecked. Verse 4, we will become callous and unloving towards the poor and needy. We will think only of our own needs or perhaps those of our immediate family. Indeed, at the extreme, we won't just ignore the poor, but we'll trample upon them in order to indulge ourselves. But Jesus teaches us to love our neighbours. He reminds us that the poor will always be with us. Indeed, in one of the few places the New Testament speaks of religion positively, the Apostle James commands us, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Real religion isn't just about being here. That's not unimportant. Indeed, it's vital It can't be reduced to that. Real religion involves being generous at cost to ourselves, to those who have little or nothing of their own. What does that look like in your life? I can't answer that question for you, but I can encourage you to ask the question. What does that look like in our shared life as a church together? Well, one long-term thing you can continue, please, to pray for and that we've begun to make steps towards is re-establishing a cap poverty debt centre in our parish. That would be a wonderful way, as it has been in the past, uh, of coming alongside in practical, loving service uh, to those who are in the deepest financial distress in our community. I'll look again at verse 5 as we come to the next diagnosis of a heart wandering from the Lord. Heartless religion corrupts integrity. These people in Amos' day sang loudly in church, but then acted corruptly in their business dealings on Monday morning. Doubtless they had their excuses. Everyone else is doing it. We'll just go under if we try and conduct our business ethically. 
It's the real world, you know. But religion that stops at the church door is worthless. Biblical religion is consistent religion. In Leviticus chapter 19, from which Jesus quoted, love your neighbor as yourself, Moses went on to spell out one of its implications. Do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quality. Use honest scales and honest weights. Do we know Jesus Christ? Do we want to live that out in the world? Then that has profound implications for the ethical behavior uh, which we engage in in our workplace. That was transparently absent in the days of Amos. Verse 6, the descent of the heart is complete. Not only was there no generosity or integrity in these religious people, there wasn't even any humanity. The poor and needy are bought and sold as human slaves for a pitiful cost. Next month, God willing, I will visit Rwanda for the GAFCON uh, gathering. On our free afternoon, I've booked in to visit the genocide memorial in Kigali. Rwanda is estimated to be 94% Christian. And yet in the 1994 genocide, a purportedly Christian people murdered perhaps a million of their own countrymen, often butchering them where they'd gathered for refuge in church buildings. Now, of course, there was a long and complicated prehistory, but feel the horror of it. Here is a people far more Christian than we are in our nation, and yet for a season of unimaginable carnage, their Christian religious profession lost all humanity. Here is heartless religion. No generosity, no integrity, and in the end, no humanity. And it's not a problem out there in the ancient Israelite past. It's certainly not a problem in the more, or just in the more recent Rwandan past. This is a problem in here. It's a problem of the heart. It's a problem we must wrestle with and recognize. It begins in us. And when we spot those signs, we must be ruthless in their elimination. Lord, have mercy upon us. Second, arrogant religion verses 7 to 10 in Luke chapter 18 Jesus told a parable about two men who went to pray one man prayed out of his arrogance he thanked the Lord for his virtues and paraded his moral superiority thank you Lord that I'm not like other men especially this tax collector here he prayed that in front of the worthless wretch who was beside him And the man who was beside him really was a wretch. He really was a sinful man. He stood at a distance from the other man and he bewailed his sins and simply cried out, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Literally, Lord, turn your anger away from me, the sinner. So uh, intensely he felt that conviction of his guilt before God. God, have mercy on me. The sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, that man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Pride is the polar opposite of faith. Arrogance is a sure sign of utterly corrupted religion. And in God's universe, as the full version of the biblical proverb has it, pride goes before a destruction, a haughty spirit before 
a fall. We collapse that into pride goes before a fall. That's still known even today in our wider culture. It's true. And it's that biblical reality that we see working out in this next paragraph. And so when we read in verse 7, uh, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, we know that Jacob is doomed. As the Lord declared in Amos chapter 6, verse 8, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. This is the third time in the book that the Lord has sworn an oath. He swore by his holiness. He swore by himself. And Israel took no notice. So if this obstinate people won't listen to him, perhaps they will take it seriously when he speaks on the basis of something that is central and certain. Indeed, the hallmark of their religion, their own arrogant pride. The second half of verse 7 is chilling. I will never forget anything they have done. I won't forget their greed. I won't forget their cheating. I won't forget their cruelty, in other words, just to reflect on the previous three verses. This is a people whose religion has turned entirely away from the God whose name is on their lips to their own appetites, their own agendas, their own glory, and they're proud of it. Their consciences are utterly seared. Their hearts have grown utterly cold and hard. They cannot see the peril in which they stand. Friends, the only hope for sinners is that the Lord chooses not to remember our sins and doesn't count them against us. It's what David prays in the Psalms. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. It's the heart of the new covenant that the prophets foretold and that Jesus fulfills these words. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That's what the gospel is. The Lord saying... I will entirely forget what you have done. That is, I will choose not to remember it any more. And I will no longer hold it against you. But you see, the ones the Lord forgives are those who are like the man in Jesus' parable. We know our sins. We're ashamed of them. We're broken by them. We know we have no claim on a holy God. And so we cry out, Lord, turn your anger away from me. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's the prayer of a humble heart. And on Jesus' authority, we go home justified before God. When the hallmark of your religion is pride and self-justification, the Lord will honor your refusal to seek his mercy or confess your sins. And so he will remember everything you have done. Proud religion doesn't seek forgiveness And so the Lord doesn't grant it. Is that the way you want to approach the day of judgment? Only the fool would say yes. Pride indeed goes before destruction. And these next verses describe vividly and poetically the coming judgment upon Israel at the hands of the Assyrians. I won't read them out again now. But it will be as if a tsunami had swept the land. Cosmic signs testifying to the scale of God's judgment. The religious feasts in which they paraded their arrogance and cloaked their ungodly hearts would become a desolation, the like of which they had never known before. And this historic devastation of arrogant Israel, which duly comes in fulfillment of the prophet's word, points to its ultimate fulfillment 
in the eternal judgment of God, which will come upon those who reject the forgiveness held out in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. As Paul puts it in the start of his second Thessalonian letter, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Lord, have mercy. Third, idolatrous religion. The last paragraph from verse 11. Jesus said, quoting Moses, For it is a truth across all of Scripture, about all of Scripture, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The reality is that the picture here, fully developed, heartless and arrogant religion, is the deadly fruit of consistently rejecting the life-giving, life-changing word of God. And if you don't use it, you lose it. Verse 11, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. The very word of scripture which called the people to love the Lord with all their heart, to seek his mercy, to live humbly before him, to love their neighbors, to live lives full of honesty and integrity, had been so shamefully abused and ignored and subverted that now the Lord would withdraw it altogether and they would no longer have access to it. And because life really does depend on every word that comes from the mouth of God, men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. And that day the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. There is a day when it is too late. There is a day when you will seek the Lord and not find him. By God's grace in his providence, that won't be in this world. Again, uh, here is uh, a picture in ancient Israel fulfilled in eternity. Until our dying day, there is an opportunity for us to lay hold of Jesus Christ, to confess our sins, to find his forgiveness. That's not in any way an encouragement to delay. The more we delay, the harder our hearts Become. There's a reason that most people who become Christians do so under the age of 25. The longer our hearts become hard, the harder it is for us to turn to the Lord. But in the end, the day of judgment comes, and on that day, there is no opportunity for forgiveness, a possibility of restoration. The vivid imagery here fulfilled in an eternal lostness of those who rejected forgiveness when it was offered to them. I think again about the days in which we live. We were discussing in house group a few weeks back uh, people's memories of Sundays through the years. Older members remembered the whole day given to the Lord and his word. Morning church, afternoon Sunday school, evening church. A people saturated by the living water of God's word. Now, we can't go backwards, and being sentimental about the past helps no one. The world has changed. We live today. But what would it look like today in your life, in your circumstances, in the complex and busy lives we all live, in your family arrangements, in your weekdays, on your Sundays, in your small groups? What would it look like 
to live out the reality that our very life, our true life, our eternal life, God's means of drawing us to himself, of equipping us to live for him and love him, absolutely depends on the sustaining grace of every word that comes from the mouth of God. If we do not attend to the word of God deeply, daily, well, then we will see what happens to our hearts. And we see the extent of that in the horrible descriptions in these verses. The less God's word is central in our own work at walk and shared life, the more prone we are to turn back from God to idols. The colder our hearts will become, the greater our own pride will be, until in the end we reach the end of verse 14. They who swear by the shame of Samaria or say, as surely as your God lives, O Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives. These are three different flavors of idolatry. Because when you turn from God, you don't believe nothing. You'll believe anything. This is the lifeless character of such a path. Staggering, fainting, falling. There is no life. In false religion, there is no life apart from that which comes from God's word. And yet, in the UK today, shamanism and Islam are the fastest growing religions. Shamanism and Islam. And by contrast, the churches at their current rate of decline, all the traditional mainline Christian denominations in England, all the traditional mainline Christian denominations in England will become extinct this century. The Methodists within the next 20 years, the Church of England in the 20 years beyond that. I won't say anything about what is going on in the Church of England at the moment, you'll be glad for that, Uh, but I think it is not controversial to say that recent developments in our national church are not the fruit of a deep desire to be ruled and renewed and reformed by the word of God, which alone can give us life and which alone can regrow the church. The signs are not good. We are living in the days when the sovereign Lord has sent a famine of hearing the words of the Lord to this country. Lord, have mercy. I must finish, but I want to take us back to where we started and end more positively than Amos does in this chapter. Not because we're not paying attention to Amos, but because his message is part of the bigger story of the Bible. And the bigger story is gospel. It is good news. What matters is not religion, but knowing the Lord Jesus. And he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Whatever is going on in our nation, whatever is going on in the Western world, whatever is going on in your family, whatever is going on in the Church of England, this promise is true for you and me today. Many of us know it. Many of us know that daily nourishing, forgiving, sustaining grace of the Lord Jesus. And you can too if you don't know it yet. This promise has not failed. Whatever the bigger picture You can know this reality in your life. Jesus, the bread of life, who brings real satisfaction as we come in him to know God personally. And let's heed carefully the warnings of Amos as we trust in Jesus and start working out the lifelong religious implications of that. We shudder at the example of Israel and we take them as a warning to us, testing 
uh, our own faith through the words of the Lord through Amos. Beware heartless religion. Seek the renewing grace of the Lord every day. What are the signs to look for? Generosity, integrity, humanity. Beware arrogant religion. We never progress from the point where we first became Christians. We are never more or less than sinners saved by grace. There's no place for pride or achievement. It's meaningless. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That will be true at the end of our pilgrimage, just as much at the beginning. And beware idolatrous religion. Let the word of Christ dwell in you and amongst us richly and powerfully. And the next time someone asks you if you're religious, don't get grumpy. That doesn't do any good. Pause and pray. Perhaps the Lord will give you the chance to say, well, maybe. I can't really deny it. But can I tell you about someone who is infinitely better than religion? Someone who can renew you, give you a fresh start and a home with God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this has been a tough passage, a hard one to hear, an even harder one if we're to test our own hearts, our own walk with you. Please would you grant us true repentance and your Holy Spirit. Please would you assure us that in you our sins are washed away and you will remember them no more. Grant to us, we pray, a faith that is lived out in ways that honour you, renewed by your grace, humbled and centred on the true and living God. We ask these things to your Father's glory. Amen.